Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, a podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. Are you ready to scale your business in the fastest possible way? Then acquisitions should be a serious consideration in your strategy. Conversely, if you're a business owner that wants to sell one day, then you probably want to get into the mind of a seasoned acquisitions professional. In this episode, we meet Dean Taverner, who helped his financial services firm grow from $450 million in funds under management to $1.8 billion by acquiring five companies in 18 months. In this episode, you'll learn how a corporate buyer will approach a transaction. Dean shares his approach to investigating an acquisition and how seemingly small things can massively impact the value of your company. And we'll also learn how to ensure a transaction is beneficial for all stakeholders. This is Dean Taverner. Dean, welcome to the show. Thanks, Simon. Pleasure to be here. Mate, I'm really excited to be chatting to you today. At, um, you know, we, we were sort of touching uh, on this a little bit prior to, to the show, but it's, it's such an interesting topic, talking about growth via acquisition. And, and I sort of feel that over the last 18 months or so, you know, COVID and the world changing, the amount of people that are starting to look at acquisitions as a growth strategy has seems to have just skyrocketed. You know, so many people seem to be coming out of the woodwork and, and sort of saying, well, I, I can build organically, I can do it the traditional route and be competitive and go out there and do the grind. Or perhaps maybe we should just go and acquire somebody and instantly assume them as, uh, you know, assume their clients, assume their processes, and let's be honest, perhaps even take them out of the competitive process. So, mate, super excited to hear your perspective on this today. Yeah, great. I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting through it. Yeah. So clearly financial services, mate, I understand, you know, as the head of operations, you, you probably sat more on the sort of integration side, you know, like deals would be sort of originated a little bit and then you start getting more involved around how do we, you know, make sure that this thing actually works and, and as a business, we get the return on investment. Is that, is that kind of right? Yeah, that's spot on. So my part of the process was about uh, about sort of making sure that the sale got the value to to us that we were looking for through the either the integration or the extraction from the business. So we did a, a few acquisitions. Some of them were essentially client book only, and we left the, the the corporate structure, the staff, and the other assets out of it. Some of them we acquired the whole company structure, including staff, processes, and all the rest. So the operational side varied from acquisition to acquisition and that was my job to work with whatever the nuances of each business were as well as the intended outcomes of the acquisition and the and the style of acquisition we proceeded with to try and get the most out of it for all sides yeah that's really interesting i mean you've already opened up one of the big questions that so many people ask is, you know, do I just acquire the assets or do I actually acquire the corporate shell, the company, the shares? And, you know, clearly two different sort of strategies there and, and different sort of risks and things you need to factor. So so that's super exciting. T- taking it to, you know, t- talk me through a little bit about, I guess, was there a bit of a strategy in, you know, I guess looking back over the deals you did, was the company was, that you worked for, were they looking to grow, obviously grow revenue, but was there uh, also an approach around geographic coverage or product service offering? Like typically what was the sort of stuff that they, they looked at? Yeah, as you said, of course, grow revenue and probably another uh, common incentive to acquire was to get some economies of scale in certain client groups. So we were looking for companies with client books 
that aligned with the type of clients that we already had so that we could leverage the the staff, the expertise and the resources that we were already deploying more efficiently um, across basically a larger client base because as is the case in, in most businesses and especially I'd say in service businesses, you can tend to grow the number and scope of clients faster than you need to grow the resources. It's not obviously a one-to-one relationship if you're structured profitably. So that was the main thing. We were looking for alignment. It wouldn't have made sense to acquire businesses with a totally different set or type of client base to whom we had to sort of structure a different service offering or type of um, even relationship management. But if there was a business that was aligned in values and messaging, so the client base was already used to the soft side of what a company communicates as well, similar to to how we did, then that transition was going to be easier for the clients, which is important, of course, for retention, stickiness, and easier for us as well without having to put a mask over who we were, which no one really wants to do. We can continue to be true to our company values and just onboard more clients that fit in with that and fit in with what we were already doing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think with anything to do with business, we're looking for leverage, right? And so you're looking for those areas where there's an overlap um, of culture and and things that already fit, um, which which makes a lot of sense. Appreciating here that this part was not really your job, but but in t- I'm, I'm curious as to how they might have sort of found some of these opportunities. I mean, was there a specific sort of outbound strategy, or was it more that there's just stuff going on and opportunities presented themselves? And you know, I guess when you're in an industry in in an industry for a while, you you, you bump into people and you come across stuff, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely much more the latter. The, the firm that I worked for had been in the industry for 30 years. Uh, I suppose it was 28 years at the time of the first acquisition. And so there were just plenty of connections, history, conversations that honestly some of them had been going on for years before it culminated in a point of, okay, maybe there is a, a benefit to an acquisition or a merger here. So definitely more of a, a network clandestine opportunity sort of arrangement. I believe that's the case for all five of the acquisitions that I helped handle. Yeah, great. It's 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 such a curious thing. It's a, it's a big question certainly that I get asked a lot is um is how do we find people, you know? It's you know, I think we've all heard this sort of stuff. It's probably the same thing in recruitment is that, you know, a lot of deals just like a lot of jobs get appointed and done without being advertised. You know, so how how do we get the inside running on this sort of stuff is uh is, is the million-dollar question, I guess. So Yeah, and I mean, it's not always a, a direct relationship. You know, sometimes it's uh, someone's looking to sell and they mention it to a few people who mention it to other people and then, you know, you know one of those third or fourth-degree connections. But in our case or cases, it, it tended to come down to we knew people who knew people and they made the connections and it worked out. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And and as the business went along, you know, obviously five tra- uh, transactions. Um, was that were those five transactions all within that sort of rough eighteen month period? Yeah, that's right. It, uh, I suppose it depends how you measure them. You know, the the implementation of the last one would have carried us over to more like two or three years until we felt like we'd fully onboarded the the clients, the staff, and the processes. But certainly, all of the actual sort of signed dates on the deals were in about an eighteen month period for all five acquisitions. Wow, that's really interesting. And that whole transition piece, I mean, we're, we're going to come to that because that's a massive topic, you know, That's but that's really interesting. I mean, five transactions in 18 months, you know, a lot of people only ever do one, maybe two. So to be involved in five in such a short period of time, I, I have no doubt you you come out the back end of an experience like that <laughs> and you, you know the process pretty well, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty full on. Uh, that was more or less my full time job description for a little while. A lot of the day to day stuff ended up um, getting shifted elsewhere, so I could just focus on making sure none of those were um, falling off the wayside. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. And and did you, how did you guys go about just broadly speaking here? But was there is there a typical kind of valuation kind of method or anything like that that companies in that industry use? Like, you know, t- oh, I see a lot of, is it a multiple of revenue or a multiple of EBITDA or is it a number of clients, you know, is there a standard? It's changed a lot, I believe, recently. I The, the industry was going through a tumultuous period at the time. We're talking around the time of the, the Banking Royal Commission, which changed a lot of the status quos. But yeah, at the time, it was essentially an industry standard that obviously had some wiggle room either side so that each transaction was valued appropriately based on its 
you know, minute details. But generally, we're falling in the ballpark of rule of thumb sort of figures on recurring revenue as opposed to to one-off revenue or new business revenue. Um, but new business was also so so new revenue in that year that hadn't yet had a chance to recur was also uh, an indicator, I guess, you know, a leading indicator for future revenue and the health of the overall service offering referral rates and general kind of acceptance within the market. So those two things combined uh, and with a bit of art rather than complete science to it, lended, um, leaded rather to the end valuation. Yeah, great. And, and, and isn't that always the way, that combination of art versus science? It's, it's a fascinating one. And it's, you know, <laughs> I think you only learn some of the art when you've been through enough of it to kind of get that feel, right? Is that the rub of it all, the read between the lines, the read the temperature of the room. It, was that your experience? Yeah, completely. And I would imagine that you know, someone that's done it tens, maybe even hundreds of times, is still going to get it wrong occasionally, right? That's uh, one of the facets of there being an art to it. You might get a better and better feel for how things should go or uh, what sort of value to place on something, but there's always going to be a bit of room for error there. And that's just something that I think you have to accept if you're going to go into this space is there's a risk to it. Of course, that's that's part of doing business, but you can get better with experience on the side of things that isn't pure numbers. Yeah, look, I totally agree. It's, um, I mean, if there was no risk at all, there'd be there'd be no return either, right? It's, um, it's just that is the nature of it all. Out of interest, uh, did your firm at the time? I'm sort of curious as to what the deal team sort of might have looked like. I mean, did did you have lawyers and accountants internally? Was it all handled internal, or did you have external advisors as well? Uh, both, yes. So we we're part of a sort of broader group. Um, without getting into the details of the structure. It's, it's, it's not my place at the moment to do that. But yeah, we had essentially um, a partnered internal-ish accounting side of things and then external lawyers, uh, and they would work together on, on the details and the due diligence before a transaction was done, and external legal teams would handle the uh, transaction and contracts. It's one of these things, I, I think people always want to know, like, what's involved in due diligence and how long does it take and all that sort of stuff. And I think, you know, how long is a piece of string, right? I mean, every business and every deal is different. Um, but one of the things I think pops up a lot out there is how many deals actually don't even make it through due diligence. Did you did you guys have any businesses that you kind of did that DD work on and then, like, everything looked great and then you get through a DD and go, hang on a minute, <laughs> this is not what we thought it was? Yeah, definitely. And as you touched upon earlier, I wasn't heavily involved in that side of things. So I couldn't even tell you uh, with much certainty how many didn't make it through. But I definitely believe that the number of deals that were looked at that made it through to a transaction was, of course, a lot less than half. You know, you'd hope that the majority of the deals have a good reason not to go ahead because then your DD team is really looking for issues and appropriately assessing the risks. And in some cases, I can think of at least one case where the outcomes of the due diligence put a halt to the deal, but changed the structure. So in one case, we were initially looking at a whole entity acquisition, shares, staff, assets, and some issues came up when looking through it through due diligence. And we discussed it. And this, this was a you know, multi-party conversation, including with the third-party lawyers, the buyer and the seller. And it was agreed in the end that the transaction would still go ahead, but scoped down to essentially just a client book acquisition, um, leaving out the corporate entity for the reasons that were discovered. So we still got a deal out of it and both parties still came out better off, we believe, but it wasn't what either party was initially looking at. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and isn't that a great lesson for, for, for people thinking about this is, you know, you can go out there looking at deals and, and you'll have certain objectives you want to achieve, but I think you've got to keep an open mind. I mean, you just, you're not sure, you never know what you're going to find until you turn over those rocks and, and you sort of really start to investigate it. So it's, you know, understanding what's really, really critical to you and, and what you can't live with and what you can't live without, those sort of things is, is obviously critical, but keep, keep an open mind, right? You never know what you might find. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that's that's the approach to everything in business. Uh, like like I said, a lot of what uh, came through to us was chance networking, um, long term conversations where a thought popped into someone's head. And I think that just being open to opportunities, open to conversations, can reap so many benefits for everyone in the long term. 
And, and and so of the deals that you did, uh, I presume, and uh, in financial services, I mean, we're talking about a service based company. There's there's no doubt a lot of advisors. There's it's it's a people business, right? So with your transactions, was it the idea that you acquired this company, and in most cases, or how many of those cases did the advisors actually come over and continue to work with you, and you had to look at that kind of real integration of people as opposed to just kind of stuff? I look, it was. 40, in 40% of the cases, uh, so two out of the five transactions, we took on at least some staff. Uh, in one of them, we took on all of the staff of the company, and the other one was uh, a bit more of a selective approach. The other three transactions were client book only, and that, I think in all cases, was a sort of a mutually beneficial solution. Either you know people were retiring or want to refocus their efforts elsewhere moving on in some way or another essentially so when someone was moving on it was a no-brainer and when they weren't we had a process of assessing the type of clients from the book from the numbers from looking through documentation communications with clients and all that sort of thing as well to see communication style even sort of you know personality and uh soft soft attributes of clients as well as of course the staff and then interviews with staff one-on-one with multiple executives from our company to get a sense of the sort of people that we thought might be coming in because it's essentially i believe a recruitment process um just because it's coming through an acquisition sorry acquisition as opposed to through a recruiter or a job ad or something like that the outcome is the same you're bringing someone in who's then going to be a part of your team, a part of your culture, affecting the way that your whole business set of processes operate, the way the rest of the team work. So we tried to approach the people side of things there, like any other recruitment with a multi-step process and really trying to understand both the professional and personal aspects of the people we were considering bringing on board. Yeah, that's... It's complicated, right? I mean, people—it can be such a messy thing. And I think to anybody who just listened to to that, um, your response there would say, "Hey, this is a guy who's been through this and gets it and understands this." Had you done any transactions? Have you been involved in that sort of stuff prior to your role in that business? No, not at all. Actually, this was a a crash course. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, that's right. And and isn't it that's how so many people do these things? And so you, I'm curious with, with the first one, when, when this sort of whole process started, did you guys sit down and kind of nut out a bit of this sort of integration process and try to map it out? Or was it a more of a, hey, we've got a bunch of really smart professional guys in the room? And, and I use the word guys liberally here, of course, we're talking about you know, guys and girls, we've got a good group of smart people here. Let's take one step at a time and logically we'll work it out. Or was there a bit of a game plan of a you know process of what we want to roll out once this happens? I could say a bit, a bit of both. It was my first acquisition to get involved in. It wasn't um, only me for whom this was the first in the team. So multiple people who had hands-on roles in making it all get over the line and then integrate uh, the acquired company with our company. For them, it was their first acquisition as well. So a lot of us were new to the game, so to speak. And I'd say we had a strategy and were ready to move with tactics, which I think is generally how I at least have have, uh, developed an approach. That's how I like to approach approach most things. So I believe that having a a full game plan laid out is often, um, of course, there are exceptions, certain circumstances, but often going to be a waste of time, right? Because you can't control people, you can't control the environment, the industry and outside your own industry as well. And so having a full game plan for something like an acquisition, which should take months if you're going to do it well, especially if you're bringing on people, it's a long process to do it, do it right. Make sure all clients are comfortable, all the legalities, compliance is ticked off and and staff are happy and adequately accepted into the new role, new team, new working process. So it's a long-term project. There's too many variables for you to control them all. So in some ways, there's no point trying from the start because you will have to change your game plan. So we had guiding objectives and strategies and then tactics to get there, which was probably a a bi-weekly or a weekly sort of revision amongst the team of leaders looking at, okay, what were our tactics and do they still apply at this point in time? Uh, especially in the first 
few weeks of the acquisition, that would definitely be at least bi-weekly. And things start to settle down towards month two or three of onboarding clients' processes, even documents, for instance, and, and just integrating all of that detail into your current systems, folders, filing, all of that sort of stuff. It's uh, The biggest hurdles tend to come up up front. And so by month two or three, we were maybe having to check in with each other and revise tactics only once every week or two. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you, you, you've got a framework for most things, you know, I guess in business and, and acquisitions are, are no different, but but the, every single company you look at is different. You know, there'll be similarities, but the people are different. The, the, the systems, the products, the services, the way they do things will be different. So, yeah, I, I, I can appreciate where you're coming from on that. It's, um, you know, guiding principles is probably a, a, a more of a logical approach rather than a really detailed concrete plan. Yeah. Definitely. Now, having said all that, you know, I guess if we could flash back in time, I imagine your fifth transaction and the way you approached it, the questions you asked, that the level of comfort you would have felt would have been vastly different to the first one or two. Yes, you're right. And there was a lot more structure. There were more checklists. (laughs) Essentially, every learning we'd had from the previous four was built into a checklist somewhere. So it didn't have a chance to surprise us again. But five was not enough. <laughs> there were there were still surprises. There were still learnings. Those checklists grew. And I think having those things like checklists and some processes and a clear idea of how long things can take and how many hurdles can pop up for each type of task within the project certainly helped, but it's not enough to, to mitigate everything, all the headaches and all the problems that can come up. And in many ways, it came down to the specifics of the business and I have to say a, a um, surprising learning for me was that simply how tidy everything in the business is made a huge impact to at least to someone in my sort of role of, okay, the transaction is basically closed. Uh, you know, we need to get the T's crossed and I's dotted, but then someone like me was stepping in to make sure that the deal closed at the end and that everything from, you know, a week before deal close through to, you can't tell the old stuff from the new stuff. It happens smoothly. Acquiring a business that has strong organizational structure from, from clear roles and responsibilities all the way down to clearly kept files. You know, if, if asking people in the business where something was yielded you multiple answers for a single piece of information, that was a big red flag because it was a, a, seems like a really mundane thing but seemed to also be an indicator of general level of cohesion throughout the business. So if the staff aren't all on the same page, the clients possibly aren't as well about what they're getting. That, that, that's honestly, I think probably one of the, the best tips um, I've heard from a lot of guests. You know, if you're running a company right now, simple things about how you file and how you manage the day-to-day, you know, it reminds me of this old expression is how you do one thing is how you do everything. And you know, hearing it here from a, a somebody who was in a professional buying acquirer position saying that, you know, when you walk in and your first pre- impression is this is a bit disorganized, clearly that's that's going to impact your perception of the company. And maybe even, you know, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, but you know, perception of the company, but potentially valuation. Yeah, definitely. From just personally, from my experience, I would let it. I would want it to affect the valuation because there's a lot more work at the other end to clean up something that is a bit messy. And in fact, I'd probably, it's a sliding scale, but I'd probably at a certain point, walk away from it and say, come back and we'll start again once you've tidied up your house, essentially. Because once that acquisition is happening, whether you're bringing across the staff or not, if you're bringing across the staff, you're bringing them across because they have work to do, right? They've got their day jobs to attend to and a new team, new process, there's a whole new environment to learn, they're not then going to have time all of a sudden on top of the job they've always had to clean up. <laughs> um, and if the staff aren't coming along, it's probably because they've got other things to attend to. You know, They might be checking out for a good reason, so they're not going to be adequately motivated to clean up. So if, if there is any cleaning up general organization to do, it's going to have a huge impact on the ease of the transaction, the ease of the integration thereafter, and is best done before you even get to that point because no one will have time afterwards to do it properly and you'll just end up basically sweeping a whole bunch of someone else's mess under your rug. 
What, what a fantastic insight. Um, you know, once again, if you own a business and you're listening to this podcast, the, the message is, you know, and, and I guess if you're related, specific question, you know, that we often get to is, is when should I prepare my business for sale? Well, I, I think, you know, and what you're hearing from, from Dean here is you prepare your company for sale. Do it now. Prepare things. Keep Run your business in a way that somebody may well tap you on the shoulder tomorrow. And if they do, you'd be quite happy to open up and, and or as, as one of my colleagues says, lift the kimono and be comfortable <laughs> that, uh, you know, what they're going to see is not going to scare them. So <laughs> prepare your business, you know, for, for the fact that you may want to sell it one day or may need to sell it one day. And, and there's so much you can be doing in the background to get your house in order. And, and not only will it look better, should you find yourself in a potential transaction. But funnily enough, your business will probably run a lot better and a good, good chance it'll be more profitable along the way. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the best time to start working on selling your business is every day from today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great tip. So, so Dean, talk just a little bit more about the sort of integration side of things because, you know, I, I'm sure we've all heard different variations of this about transactions that fail, and, and okay, you know, it, it, we hear about stuff failing in due diligence and all the rest of it, thing, you know, things don't stack up to what we, we thought they'd be, so we pulled out. You know, hey, understandable, right? But but what there's a lot of transactions that fail after the deal's been done, right? The deal gets inked, the money gets paid, right? Now it comes the, 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 in what I actually think is probably the more challenging part is how do we merge two different cultures and how do we bring people along for the journey? So what's, you know, how did you find that process? What were some of the sort of things that you, you discovered on that, uh, in that process? <laughs> I feel like we, through five acquisitions, went through a bit of it all. So I, um, I'm not even sure where to start. I mean, we had issues with integrating staff um, and that I think, again, you wouldn't treat it any differently to any other staff issue. I mean, once, once you've agreed to bring someone into your company, it's like, as I said, recruiting them or like they've always been there. You know? So you then treat it like any other HR situation. You, know, you need to set clear goals, be really uh, communicative and, and have that as a two-way street, but be also firm and clear on boundaries if that is the issue. Yeah, we, we across the five transactions, experienced some issues with onboarding staff. We experienced some issues with clients not being happy about the situation because, of course, they are generally not consulted. Um, and so, so, so take, take me back to, to, and sorry to jump in on you, but the, the people side of things is, is such a critical one. Did you find after sort of Merging, you know, I think the concern for most people is there might be a bit of a them and us attitude and stuff like that. Um, did you ever find staff left shortly after, whether it's three, six, nine months, whatever it might have been? But did, did you ever see staff leave because you felt maybe they just weren't comfortable after after a transaction was done? Yes. Yeah, we had that. And when that is the case, it can be seen as a failing of the integration, of course. But uh, in a couple of couple of instances I'm thinking of, you know, we did our best to make it work. The person or people concerned were still sort of not really happy with how things had changed. And I think the bottom line was that when you go through a process like this, there is change. Um, and not everyone's going to be comfortable with change. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse for each individual. And, and if you're a growing company or a larger company, I mean, the bigger you get, the less likely it is. Um, even from two staff onwards, that you're going to be able to keep everyone happy with each decision that you make. So that's uh, that's the harsh reality is that you know where there were some changes that were right for the business and right for the integration and the transaction that didn't work for some individuals. And in that case, I think it's better for everyone that if someone wants to leave, you don't stand in their way too much. You know, try to try to find a middle ground, try to compromise. But if they really want to leave, there's no point pushing back on that too hard because it's better for them and it's going to be better for you rather than having a disgruntled or disengaged employee. Yeah, look, I think that's that's some golden advice right there. I mean, it, I actually saw a chap once, he, he left because he simply didn't want to move offices. He said, I'm not going to work in the city. You forced me to, I'm out. <laughs> and so, you know, it actually was very little to do with the integration and just the fact that he wasn't comfortable with the with changes that were going to happen to his day-to-day -day life. So, 
Yeah, that's a great example of something that you can't do much about. You know, if your office is where it is, you're not going to relocate everything to suit one person and that's just going to have to be an amicable parting of ways. Yeah. And and so with the staff, and I, I, I want to get onto the customers in a second because, of course, that's such a such an important part too. But talk me through a little bit about the communications. Like, you know, you acquire another business, there's people coming in. I think certainly in my experience, the great fear is how will people perceive this and we don't want to scare people, we want everyone to, you know. So how did you approach communications with staff is there an approach the timing all that sort of stuff was how, how did you handle that yeah that can be tricky and i think it's the same with clients the trickiest thing is probably timing right it would be fantastic if you could keep everyone uh the the acquired staff so to speak your existing staff clients both old and new abreast of what's happening as it happens but the reality is of a transaction like this is that there's normally quite a lot of confidentiality, a lot of things up in the air, and you don't want to communicate something that you have to walk back on. So having to accept that there will be some surprises for staff along the way and they might feel blindsided, like it's quite obvious that if a transaction has happened, it has been being worked on for weeks or months. Um, And so if you just suddenly tell all your staff, by the way, (laughs) we've acquired this company and, you know, X more people are suddenly part of your team, they're understandably going to think, well, it's uh, uncomfortable to me that I didn't know about this any earlier when management have known about it for a long time. Mitigating that as best you can without breaching any requirements of keeping confidentiality or keeping details under wraps when they're not yet solidified would be great. At the same time, if anyone works out a hard and fast way to do that, let me know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Absolutely, and, and well, I think once again you've got that that unique situation of every all your staff are all individual human beings, right? So you can't predict how people will, will react to stuff. Yeah, definitely, and I think for the most part, people just want some reassurance. Um, I'm definitely putting words in in multiple people's mouths here. You know, everyone has different motivations, but if you can tell people how it affects them, so not what what was chosen because of the good of the company, but Hey, this is how this is going to affect your day-to-day life or your job security. Those are among the most important priorities for people. And if they can understand that this is going to be a good thing for the business as a whole, great, but also how will it affect what they have to do every day, who they report to, if that's a relevant consideration and how likely it is that they still have a job next week, next month and next year, then I think those are your fundamental communication points amongst staff out of the way. Uh, And it's probably up to individual team managers if you've got that level of granularity to take all the details from there on in. But the basics of job security, day-to-day changes to job descriptions and responsibilities um, and the overall reasoning why the company made such a big decision, how it should affect the company as a whole, probably, in my opinion, need to come from an authoritative place, so a management or executive uh, in the company to all staff as soon as it's reasonable to do so. Mm, super helpful. And and the customers themselves, I mean, I you know, you mentioned before, and I and I can imagine there there will always be some customers perhaps who, who aren't happy. I, I, I'd love you to share with the listeners how you sort of handled communicating with those customers and 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 i guess question part two is you know you must after a number of transactions you you undoubtedly you you have some clients who will leave like i i can't imagine a world that wouldn't happen and so do you start coming into transactions going well we will expect a 10 percent attrition rate or something like that does it does that does that go through your mind at the time yeah definitely you I don't think you could go into a transaction assuming that you're going to keep 100% of the clients by number or by dollars of revenue. It's optimistic. It could happen, but you're going to have to uh, see the value in the transaction with 90 or 95% of that sticking around. But I mean, hopefully there are other benefits to it, other um, economies of scale or opportunities for more client growth in a different niche or network that the transaction open up opens up that more than compensate for the little bit of attrition you're going to get in the client base. 
Yeah, okay. And and from your perspective, just I guess in your opinion, having done this a number of times, is there a better way to communicate with customers? Like, you know, is there formal communications? Is it done in person? Is it, you know, what, what would be your suggestion to the average entrepreneur out there thinking of acquiring a company? Um, I think that depends entirely on the, on the industry and the company. Uh, for my situation, the company I was working with, it's a service-based business. Therefore, it was very, it was very people-focused. So there was a lot of in-person or one-to-one type phone calls, with, with, especially with key customers, as well as written communications across multiple channels. So perhaps a letter and an email or a, you know, a sort of newsletter type email, as well as a, a directed actually personally one-to-one written email, phone calls, and then mentioned at the next in-person meeting as well. So that's a a long-term part of the integration process. You might not be meeting or your client service personnel might not be meeting with each client, um, some of them, you know, for 12 months after the transaction date. But I think it's a good thing to keep on the radar for the people in those client-facing positions to bring it up, even if it has been a long time from the staff perspective. It might be the last or the second last thing the client has heard from the company in general. Um, If you only touch base with them every now and then because you've got an otherwise happy, relatively hands-off relationship, as I'm, as I'm, what I'm trying to say is it might have been 12 months, but it might also be the last thing they heard about. So it'll be top of mind for them, even if it is otherwise um, feeling quite distant for the staff. So bringing it up whenever you do see the client next in person and just talking through it, explaining things if there's any confusion and making sure that they're comfortable with understanding why they've been acquired, so to speak, or why the company has acquired a whole bunch of other clients that are now competing with them for attention. I think it's a conversation worth happening whenever it next is best to take place. So at the next in-person meeting, if that's a regular enough occurrence. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And and I've you know I've heard certainly from from clients and people we've we've worked with as well that it's I think a lot of this is about it, owning the message too. You know, and from what I'm hearing you're saying is you you know you're definitely giving some tactical th- thoughts to each client and how the best way to communicate with them. But you know, being on the front foot with this stuff and and you know you really only get one chance to present this news, and so you kind of want to make sure that you do it in a way that um, helps you frame it in the right way for them and makes it more palatable and digestible. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think you'd want your client communications and your communications to all staff in the organization, old and, and new, uh, written and, and basically ready to go as soon as that dotted line is signed, so to speak. Mm. One of the things you said before um, was you've seen transactions where integration happen sort of maybe reasonably quickly, you know, versus some are longer. Um, you know, we. we Talk me through that a little bit. Like, what, what are the sort of typical? What was what's a what's a quick integration versus a longer integration in your world? I look in that industry um, at that time and with the technology and compliance available. Those are two really important layers. I think technology can help speed things up, and compliance determines some timeframes beyond anyone else's control. But all that being said, look, a, a book only, a client book only transaction is always going to be a bit quicker. Of course, there are a fewer complicated variables to balance. And so the shortest time frame in which we probably felt like we had everything really well integrated and under control there would have been about three months, maybe sort of three to five. But we would continue to treat that portion of the client book, of the now wider client book, somewhat separately just in the background. So just keeping tabs on it, tracking it for at least a year. Um, so we wanted to have a minimum 12-month view on every transaction. That's often for contractual reasons with you know, a portion of the, of the acquisition payment dependent on first-year revenue or number of re- uh, revenue dollars that stick and that sort of thing. But it's just really good to know as well because how well accepted something like this is isn't necessarily going to show in the short term, but it will always show in the long term. And in comparison... The more complicated transactions uh, where we took on an entire company, the share structure, staff, processes, premises, and assets, um, I'd say that there, there were elements of integration of that that were still happening nearly three years after the transaction was signed. As you alluded to before, there can be a bit of an us and them mentality, and that's not going to change overnight no matter what you do. That's not as simple as a 
nice, friendly, cohesive, we're all one team email. It's a long-term thing and you chip away at it and hopefully everyone does feel like a nice, friendly, cohesive team (laughs) eventually. Um, But it's something that has to be taken in baby steps, I think. Yeah, it's um, once again, I mean, you know, most complex thing you can deal with is a human being, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Tool systems processes, well, that's, uh, you know, it's it's a lot, lot cleaner and simpler. You know, clearly people present probably the greatest risk but uh, to, to things going pear-shaped. But what are some of the other challenges, you know, if, if somebody was to come to you now and sort of say, oh, look, I'm, I'm in the doing due diligence, I'm looking at buying a company, you know, what sort of tips would you give that person when they start thinking about integration afterwards? It depends a lot, of course, on the context. Um one thing that comes to mind, not necessarily the highest priority, but just what has popped first into my head is to consider the external environment as well. Um, if you're diving into the details of a company you're considering buying, you, I think, can easily get lost in those details as you're, you're diving into potentially, you know, every mum number or sort of month by month look. But there's a broader world out there. You might make this transaction and then two or three months later, something that's been on the horizon for a little while you didn't think was going to happen for a few years, hits and all of a sudden that changes the the value of what you've just bought. So just keep in mind the broader world while you're diving into the nitty gritty uh, would be one thing. Yeah, look, isn't that a great tip? I mean, you know, COVID. <laughs> I mean, do we need a, a bigger example, right? It's um, and, and we saw the same thing in the GFC. Um, you know, you, your business is swimming along and then the next day your entire world has changed. Um, and I guess if you're neck deep in a, in a transaction, I mean, that can have a, a massive impact on, on the overall sort of ROI you're expecting from this deal, right? Yeah. And I mean, it's a diversification issue probably if you're looking at something that's got multiple expected benefits to your, your staff, your culture, your processes, your client book, whatever it might be. Um, it's probably unlikely for you know most environmental changes short of a global pandemic that every perceived benefit is going to be wiped out at once um, or drastically reduced at once so if you are buying something for multiple reasons uh, you've got a little bit of spread of your risk there yeah wow well fascinating stuff so so you've finished up at lifestyle and then you've you've taken the the leap and gone out on your own Um, so tell us a bit about what you're doing now yeah, I jumped into the entrepreneurial world. Uh, I'm, I founded a social enterprise with my wife, which has been a lot of fun um, and a lot of challenges as well. So we you know, started with an idea and we've been growing that. So our social enterprise is, is called Pixie and essentially is a world away from financial services. It's a, a product-based business in consumables. So we deliver um, eco-friendly pads and tampons to businesses you know, like toilet paper, like soap, like any other bathroom consumable basically and it's it's been fantastic um a lot of learnings uh again by doing mostly so crash course and everything and that has been really exciting as well it's great to be constantly learning to be growing something um and see you know an idea become a reality and become a bigger and bigger reality month by month especially if you feel like you're helping people and I'm donating 50% to charity as we go. and So it's uh, early days, but I'm really excited to see where it takes us. Uh, look, that's fantastic. I, I think there's nothing more rewarding, right? I mean, that's, that's you know, the people we're talking to right now are the people who've taken those leaps. And, and you know, one one of the themes that, that uh, is a recurring theme in our shows is that, you know, we, we fundamentally believe that entrepreneurs are the ones who truly change the world. You know, they're the ones that see problems, see things that they don't agree with, uh, and and actually go out and do something about it. And usually at great cost to themselves with great risks. Um, and as we know, many of them fail. So, you know, this this entire show is a is a massive salute to people who go out into business for themselves and and try to make a difference and 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 most of them are doing it for the right reasons. So, um, which which it very much sounds like your organisation is. I'm going to ask you the, the the dumb layman guys question now, right? So, you're selling it. You're, you're running a business with consumables. It's it's around female hygiene products. How does a guy lead a lead a company like that? It's uh, you know, and I know it's with your wife. So I don't know. We're pulling apart roles here, but you know, I'm sure there's got to be people asking that question. Uh, yeah. Well. 
I mean, the answer is really with a lot of help from my wife. <laughs> you know, she's a co-founder. <laughs> she knows what she's talking about. Um, and really my experience and my contribution is just in uh, being willing to give things a go, try stuff out, you know, all the sort of experimentation side of, of being a startup. Um, but knowing the market and knowing the product is is where my wife steps in. But also, to be honest, there's... I think we're we're in a fantastic era to be doing something like this. There's, I mean, the premise of our organization is that period products aren't any different to toilet paper to soap. It's a sanitary hygiene product. We kind of think the only reason they're not in bathrooms everywhere, like toilet paper and soap are, is for you know, sort of archaic, patriarchal, sexist type reasons. And that that's crumbling quickly. So, um, you know, you'd have to be, have been living under a rock to not see that seismic shift in culture and i think that applies to to people talking to me about period products and vice versa as well i've had very little um occurrences of talking to someone and it feeling awkward for me or them as far as i'm aware uh, you know people generally just go okay period products your guy doesn't seem to make a difference yeah you, you were breaking up a fair bit during that bit and i thought that bit was really really important i mean i'm asking the dumb question because you know you're gonna have people out there who ask <laughs> it <laughs> and and i love the way you're answering it because it's very much what we're about as well so yeah dean you were saying there um just a little bit about i guess the shift in culture and the shift in the way people think and look at these sort of topics which, you know, look, in my view, is, is long overdue. Um, and, and you're seeing that shift yourself. Yeah, definitely, every day. So um, as I was saying, it's just a, a seismic shift in, in the culture uh, to gender not being an issue or you know, it shouldn't be an issue in, in most places and most times. Um, and that applies certainly to, to my involvement as the co-founder of Pixie as well. I've had possibly thousands, definitely hundreds of conversations now with people about menstruation, about period products. And I cannot actually think of one yet um, that has come with any kind of remarks or uh, discomfort. And, and it's one of those things that as soon as the conversation begins, if there is any, it melts away immediately when you realize, okay, we're just talking about a product um, and a problem that's, that's relatively easy to understand. And it doesn't really, you know, it's, it's not a a complete barrier that I'm one gender or the other to be able to talk about something that affects 51% of the planet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And nor should it, right? I mean, like some of the stuff that, that I, I think, you know, and, and, and this is a topic for another day, but I mean, I, you know, you do hear about stuff that still goes on these days and it makes you wonder, but it's, um, it, the world is shifting, perhaps not fast enough by some people's standards, but, um, we're very glad it's heading in the right direction. So, so what's next? I mean, what, what what's your um, where do you go with this business? Is there a, a, an end game, an exit plan, a, 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 an ultimate objective that you'd like to try and achieve? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't know anyone that goes into into any sort of startup um, project without either essentially sale or IPO as the exit plan, right? I, uh, unless I've got a huge blind spot, you need some sort of exit plan for all the effort that you're putting in. Eventually, even if it's you know, you might, your goal might be to start up a small business that happily provides for you and your family and creates a bit of good in the world and you want to run it till you retire. But even when you retire, that is your exit point and you need some sort of strategy there. So bring it back to, you know, you asked what our plan is. Yeah, our plan is to, to grow Pixie to, you know, get period products freely available in as many places as we can because we think that would be a great change to see in the world, especially the eco-friendly sort. And eventually to, to exit, you know, either through a sale or through IPO. Um, and that's probably all I'll say about the details of the sort of long-term plan for the moment. Um, but <laughs> uh, no, no secret, secret sauce or 11 herbs and spices here, people. You're going to have to come back for uh, another show after the, the deal was done. <laughs> yeah, that's right, round two. Um, but, but all I will say was that, uh, that part of the conversation we had earlier about when's the right time to prepare for sale, that, I do have that in mind. You know, everything that we do, I try to think, okay, well, how would this look if someone could see all the details? If someone was looking on the inside would I be embarrassed or ashamed about anything that we're doing or just not know what it is if I was looking at it from an outside perspective and try to, you know, accommodate for that in the way that we do everything now so that hopefully there's a little bit less tidying up to do when it does come time to hand over to someone else. 
Well, and isn't that one of the great tips and takeaways from today's session? So, Dan, I'm going to ask you in a moment uh, for for your one tip that you'd pass on to your fellow entrepreneurs. But before I do that, is there are you happy for people to reach out and connect? Where are you on LinkedIn? Where's the best place for people to to reach out and find out more about Dean Taverner? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm happy to connect. Um, I'll actually, uh, if you don't mind, use that as the segue to what I believe is coming up next was the one tip that I can give to anyone else was was network. Um, so much of all of the best things that have happened to me professionally and personally have just come from talking to people and helping. Uh, I think the entrepreneurial community is fantastic for that anyway. There seems to be a really good camaraderie of anyone that's trying to build or grow a business to just want to help one another. And if you can help someone, maybe they can't help you for a year or two, but generally it comes back around. And if it doesn't, you still help someone and that's great. So my one tip would be talk to people and help wherever you can. Um, And to that end, I am happy to do that, happy to be connected with and have conversations with anyone who I can help uh, in any way, whatever that may be. And so you can do that. Um, You can find me on LinkedIn, Dean Tavener, T-A-V-E-N-E-R. Uh, I'm the guy holding a tampon in my profile picture, so it should be easy to spot <laughs> or contact me through through our social enterprise website. So pixie, P-I-X-I-I.com.au was all sorts of contact details on there. That's about it. I don't really do any other social media other than a little bit of LinkedIn and then otherwise all focus on Pixie. So either one of those channels will do and happy to help if at all possible. Well, that is absolutely awesome, Dean. Like, thank you so much. I I love your message about, I mean, fundamentally pay it forward, right? I mean, you know, sometimes people aren't in the position to help you in return for your help, but uh, you know what? If they keep paying it forward and we all keep paying it forward, we're going to be living in a much better world. So thank you so much for sharing your story, Dean, because I have absolutely no doubt that you have helped the lives and the worlds of other fellow entrepreneurs, which is what it is all about. It's been brilliant. We you know, really look forward to um, continuing to get to know you more and, uh, and mate, best of luck for everything in the future. Thanks so much. I absolutely enjoyed it. And um, yeah, we'd, we'd love to um, follow on and help as much as possible. And I think you're doing great work spreading that word and diving into people's stories and allowing each guest to help the next one along. So Good job. Keep it up. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, You can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.